0: Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. I'm Artemis Irvin, and today we're visiting France at the end of the Second World War and meeting one astonishingly brave female resistance fighter with a glamorous family connection. If you know anything about fragrances, you'll probably know that Miss Dior is one of the most iconic perfumes of the 20th century. And it made its debut in 1947 when its creator, Christian Dior, launched his acclaimed New Look collection. The new look was characterised by enormous, fairy-tale-like skirts and hyper-feminine silhouettes with tiny waists, and it was all very different to the meagre use of fabric that was used in a time of rationing, and the uniforms that lots of women had worn during the war. But amongst all of the glamour and the luxury of Miss Dior's launch was one reserved, but extraordinarily brave woman, Catherine Dior, Christian's younger sister, and the inspiration behind the fragrance. Barely 18 months previously, Catherine had been liberated from Ravensbrück concentration camp, where she had been sent as a result of her involvement in the French Resistance. Her story, and the stories of so many other women like her, is the subject of our guest today, Justine Picardy's latest book, Miss Dior, A Story of Courage and Couture. Justine is a novelist, fashion writer and biographer. She's a former editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar and Town & Country. Her 2010 biography of Coco Chanel was shortlisted for the Galaxy National Book Awards. I spoke to Justine about the remarkable Catherine Dior just last week. Justine, thank you so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. It's such a pleasure to have you, especially when I know you've been so busy promoting your wonderful new book. Thank you,
1: Artemis. I'm thrilled to be having this conversation with you today.
0: So I wanted to start by asking you about the book. You... About Miss Dior, the book. Um, you write very vividly about how her story came to you. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell our listeners
1: about that experience and and when you first
0: decided that you wanted to write this book.
1: I was at Christiane Dior's home in the south of France, and I was sitting there with one of the archivists from Dior, and he he mentioned to me uh Christiane's younger sister, Catherine, who had been in the French Resistance and who had grown Roses after the war and had lived very, very close to Christian's home in Provence and indeed Christiane and Catherine had lived there together during the war. And just immediately I thought, oh, my God, you know, nobody's ever thought about Christianity or through the 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 lens, the prism of his younger sister who was, Clearly, very brave to have been in the French resistance, but had been totally forgotten. And I was interested in their relationship as siblings, but also because Catherine was the woman to whom he was closest in the world. For a man who becomes famous with his post war vision of heightened femininity and escapism and, you know, the dream of romance and beauty, the fact that his sister, Hadn't been written about and had been forgotten by history. Her story had literally been forgotten. That is when I knew I wanted to explore her story in the context of history.
0: Exactly, and and there isn't very much evidence, um, kind of that remains about Catherine's life. You've you've had to piece together lots of different things to build this this picture of who she was, and a lot of the a lot of the. Um, time in the book, you're writing about women who were Catherine's contemporaries, either her her contemporaries in the resistance or in um, Ravensbrück later. And it gives this amazing sense of the book being a kind of account of French women's experiences during the war. And, and how important was that to you in the when you were researching the book to make this as much a story about um, these women as it was about Couture and about Catherine?
1: Yes, it, that was very important to me. I've, you know, thought long and hard you know, over the course of a long career about how very often the female gaze, as it's known in art, um, has been excluded. I mean, having been the editor in chief of Harper's Bazaar, I was aware at how often women have been to a degree objectified by male photographers or, or male artists. And during my time at Harper's Bazaar, I was always very keen to show women as they saw themselves and each other. And I was really struck by how women in the French Resistance had really been forgotten. There were very few people in the French Resistance to start with. When Catherine joined at the beginning of 1942, there were no more than 100,000 active members of the French resistance. And that was in a population of 40 million, even at the height of the resistance, which is after the D-Day landings in June, 1944, there were, you know, maximum 400,000. So 1% of the population, the network that Catherine was part of, which was called F2 had, it was about two thousand eight hundred members of it, it was one of the earliest networks in the French resistance and about 25% of them were women. But what really struck me is that women like Catherine who were in the resistance and then deported to Ravensbrück concentration camp and other camps, their stories were really ignored when they returned to France or at least when the survivors amongst them returned to France. And as I began to piece together Catherine's story, I began to realise that what I wanted to write was a book which is called, you know, Miss Dior, A Story of Courage and Couture. And for me, Miss Dior is not one woman. Miss Dior was, was named by Christian, it's the name of his first perfume, as a tribute to Catherine, but Miss Dior for me is the story of many women, including Catherine. Miss Dior is also an imaginary woman, this this symbol of French luxury and and couture and, and, and perfume after the Second World War. But she, if Miss Dior, you know, is the name both of a book and a perfume and indeed a very famous couture dress, in my book she is also The voices of many silenced women
0: yeah it's such a powerful thought why do you think it was that their stories were and their experiences were ignored or silenced after the war
1: i think that france had a particularly tricky history of occupation and collaboration so as in many of parts of europe there had to be a kind of collective amnesia in order to move forward after the war. So when Charles de Gaulle, at the liberation of Paris in August 1944, in his famous speech at the liberation, he says, you know, France, France has liberated itself, the eternal France, the whole of France. And so although there were post-war trials and there was you know, the, the savage operation, or as it's called, there is also quite rapidly a forgetting. And I think that this particularly applied to the women who were the survivors of the camps, because I think it was very hard for the French to see them because they were these living reminders of the evil that had been done in France. When Catherine and... Other members of the resistance were arrested in July 1944. Catherine was arrested by um, a unit of the Gestapo in Paris called the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo, and it it had a German leader in it and it worked with German members of the Gestapo in Paris. But it it the majority of the people in this unit were French, and Catherine and three hundred other members of the resistance were tortured by this Gestapo unit and they were tortured by French collaborators. They had been betrayed by French collaborators too. So collaboration was so widespread, not all of it active, so active as in the form of this Gestapo unit, but kind of, I suppose, just doing what it takes to survive. Given how rare, relatively speaking, it was to resist, that leaves massive divisions between those who'd collaborated those who'd resisted and those who had betrayed members of the resistance and that means to see those returning women who returned in the summer of 19 early summer of 1945 like Catherine from the camps with their heads had been shaved they were emaciated they were unrecognizable they were literally bearing both the the physical and psychological scars and wounds of their suffering, people just did not want to hear their stories. Mm. It was too raw and too, yeah. And too painful and too shaming, too humiliating. And Christian himself in his memoir says that at the time of the launch of his couture house, which he conceives of really relatively soon after the traumatic ending of the second world war he says Paris is still bearing its wounds in Mm. the form of bullet holes in the you know the walls of Paris but I think that people were still bearing its scars and there's a picture that I included in the book about les femmes tendues as they were known so the women who had their, their heads shaved after the liberation and their heads were shaved um to humiliate them for sleeping with the enemy, sleeping with Germans, but I think in some cases those women whose heads were shaved were scapegoated. I mean there were just as many men who collaborated, their heads weren't shaved and I think that, that women became scapegoats but then what was very traumatic for the re- women like Catherine who returned from the camps and their heads had been shaved in the camps and often hadn't their hair hadn't grown back because they were starving that there is a a woman whose testimony I use in the book that she said they were mistaken for collaborators whose heads had been shaved so the trauma of that female experience is so profound
0: Mm. thinking about how those women as you described were kind of physical reminders for people of um, the horrors of what had happened. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is in the book, you very regularly visit the places that you're writing about. How important was it for you to be in those places physically?
1: As a writer, it's always been important for me to actually go to the places I'm writing about. Um, I think the place can be a, a character in a book, Um, It certainly always is for me, uh, the spirit of a place. And I think that for me as a a writer, there are very powerful places or resonant places where the kind of veil between the past and the present, between the living and the dead, can become more translucent. And I'm always interested in physically exploring those places as well as exploring them as a writer. Mm -hmm. So that leads us
0: on really nicely to the question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast, which is that if you could travel through time to any year in history, what year would you choose?
1: For me, the year would be 1947. So in the aftermath of the Second World War, it's the year where Although Christian Dior has already set up his couture house the previous year, it's the year that he does his first, what is seen as revolutionary new look collection, which takes place in February, 1947 in Paris. But it's also when those post-war war crimes trials are still going on in the, in Germany in the aftermath of the second world war. And for me, the conjunction of those both the trial mm-hmm. And the presentation of Christian Dior's first collection are happening simultaneously, and that to me is really resonant. Yeah,
0: exactly. Because um, it really struck me in the book that a lot of the questions that you seem to be posing, are, as, is it ever possible to move on from something as traumatic um, as what you've been describing, whether it's through um, art and fashion or um, and and kind of a joyful something joyful or through kind of a not retribution is the wrong word but the kind of legal aspect the justice aspect the the paying for the crimes committed that those were both those two things felt quite thematically similar it's about how do you in the wake of this horrific thing that's
1: happened how do you move on from it what i was really struck by partly because they take place at the same almost exactly the same time the the ravensbrook trial and Christian Dior's show that the last day of the Ravensbrook trial, which was the first time and place I chose, which takes place on um, the 3rd and 4th of February, 1947. And just a week later, you have the Christian Dior trial. And it is in a sense, a, a catwalk show, a couture show. There are people that sit and and judge it, um, which are, you know, members of the press, consumers. It is judged to be a success or a failure. And then at the same time, you have what are sometimes known as the show trials that happened after the, the Second World War. And they are they have to be show trials because justice has to be seen to be done because. The crimes of the Nazis were so horrific, but very, very few people are put on trial. So there is an element of show mm, about mm. it.
0: So, so yeah. So, without further ado, would you like to tell us about the first scene that you want to visit in
1: 1947? Yes. Yeah, so it's it's in Hamburg, um, in the court in Hamburg, and it was a largely a, a British trial because Hamburg. Um, in that it was the British that were running the proceedings, because Hamburg was in the British zone, and it's where the the, the first Ravensbrück trial takes place. The Nuremberg trial um, had already started, and. And the Nuremberg trial, as we know, was the one that really got all the headlines. The other trials that take place um, in the aftermath of the Second World War receive much less publicity and coverage. And in the book, um, I describe really what what takes place in, in this trial. And what's interesting about it is that there are Female defendants as well as men, because Ravensbruck was Hitler's only concentration camp for women, and about three and a half thousand female concentration camp guards that then went to work on in camps throughout the Third Reich, but were all trained at Ravensbruck. So the the trial judges women as well as men and that's there is a kind of taboo in thinking about the crimes of women during the Mm -hmm. holocaust and there were female guards there were also female doctors and nurses that that took part in the really horrific medical experiments that were carried out at Ravensbrück so the trial began in early December, 1946. And again, the timing is so interesting to me because that is when Christian Dior is beginning the process of designing what will be his first fashion collection. And this, his first fashion collection is looking at the idea of femininity in the aftermath of the second world war. But on trial, you have women who are, really you know portrayed as as monsters because instead of behaving in a in a way that is seen as being um traditionally female which is nurturing and caring they are as cruel as the male ss Mm. they're certainly not as senior as the men um, they occupy much more junior roles and right at the bottom of the SS hierarchy, but they are nevertheless put on trial. And, and what is striking about them is that there's something so, yes, they're monsters, but there is something so ordinary about mm. all of them. And one of the observers at the trial um, was a member of the French Resistance called Germaine Tillion, and her um, she kept a secret diary when she was at Ravensbrook, and this her her writing was very important to me. She is an important character in Miss Dior, but her testimony is very important. So she was an anthropologist by training. So. I think almost as a survival mechanism, she documented what she saw and experienced at Ravensbrook as a prisoner. And then she goes and documents this trial and she looks at it in a very clear sighted, almost, you know, academic anthropological way in terms of writing everything down. But of course, as, as a woman, as a prisoner who has suffered these terrible experiences she's also writing in a very emotional way and i was wondering actually if i if i might read some of her testimony um, in in her description she she's not called as a witness but but she is a witness to history so one of the women on trial was called dorothea binns She was still only 26 at the time of her trial which shows she joined Ravensbrook at the age of to work there as a 19 year old guard and she became feared throughout the camp for her brutality she's blonde her hair was very very neatly styled at the trial just as it had been during her time as as a guard and her former colleagues who are on trial in the ss all look similarly respectable and germaine writes there they were well dressed well groomed well scrubbed proper a dentist doctors a former printer nurses middle level workers no criminal records normal educations, normal childhoods, ordinary people. And Germain attended every day of the trial, which goes on in, until the 3rd of February, 1947. And all of the 16 defendants pleaded not guilty to the charges of ill treatment and killing allied prisoners interned at Ravensbrück. So it's interesting they plead not guilty. Mm. All were found guilty, although one of them, a doctor involved in the medical experiments, died of a heart attack just two days before sentencing. And then Germaine goes on to write, during the recesses, with the courtroom almost empty, I remained there facing them, facing the defendants, looking at them silently, overwhelmed with pain and sorrow before these creatures who had committed so much evil and who now aligned only a few yards from me were having to answer for the thousands of cold, deliberate murders of defenseless women. And this experience um, reinforced her sense that the the sheer scale of the suffering at Ravensbrook was so unfathomable, so enormous, so immense that it would be impossible to ensure justice for the victims or to explain why these apparently ordinary people, these perpetrators had behaved with such savage inhumanity. So she writes, I was very aware that what I knew personally barely scratched the surface of their crimes and that no man, no legal proceedings, nor any historical study could ever give the complete account and they the best informed, the only ones who had known the entire story had already forgotten part of it. I became all too aware of the widening gap between what really happened and that imprecise representation known as history. Mm. It's so powerful what she writes because, because the defendants plead not guilty and are unable to accept their guilt because it's so unimaginable what's happened in Ravensbrück and other camps that this this enormous chasm opens up between those who have experienced it, those who have perpetrated it and those who cannot understand it. And this seems to me to be very relevant to Catherine Dior's experience and the experience of others like Like. her that they, these women, I mean, there were over, you know, many women of many different nationalities were imprisoned at Ravensbrück. There were Polish women, British women, French women, Dutch women, German women. And they return to their, their homelands, but to a place where nobody can comprehend what they've experienced and that is and becomes another part of of their suffering after the war
0: Mm. yeah thank you so much for reading those extracts they're so like you say they're incredibly powerful um I wonder what are we to make of these um, female guards at Ravensbrook, or the other, you know, a- a- apparently ordinary people who committed these crimes. What, what, what do you make of them when you were researching for this book?
1: Well, it. I mean, it. it I went to Ravensbrook twice while I was researching the book, and I really didn't want to, to go. I I felt kind of scared of going to confront you know such a terrible place and I'm half Jewish my father is is Jewish and his parents my grandparents sort of like as was in common with that generation never talked about the second world war but they had extended family members who, who died in the camps and during the holocaust so I didn't want to go there, but ultimately I realized I couldn't write the book without going there. So when I went to Ravensbrück, I went to Berlin first, and it's only, Ravensbrück's about 80 miles north of Berlin. Very, very few people go to Ravensbrück. It's not one of the camps that is a site of pilgrimage, like Auschwitz, for example. So when I went, I met the archivists there, but there was nobody visiting the camp, I sort of had it all to myself. I mean, it's a massive site. Um, and that's why I had to, to go back um, a few months later. But I was struck so by so many different things. But one of them was the Camp Commandant's house, which has been preserved uh, because after the war, it was part of the occupied Soviet zone. It was part of East Germany. And the Soviets that occupied the camp and were there for quite a long time, didn't really do anything. So so somebody presumably rather senior was based in the camp commandant's house. The camp, there had been two commandants and the one that was there for the longest period and was there when Catherine was there, was a, a man, a family man called Fritz Suren. And he had lived in this house, which is right next to the camp. and it's up on a hill so you would have been able to see into the camp um, with his wife and four children. And it, it, the, the, the house looks like something, it's like a sort of almost like a gingerbread house in a brother's grim fairy tale. It's, it's, it's rather it's built according to um, the SS principles, um, Himmler, who conceived of, of Ravensbrück and, and you know, ran the camps, had a, a house nearby where he kept the woman who was his lover, the, the, the wife of, uh, not his wife, but the mother of two children. So the fact is, was that this sort of idealized vision of the Nazi family is very close to the camp both in the form of the commandant's house, but also Himmler's mistress and and two children. So there's this strange conjunction between a a place of unimaginable suffering where women are held and this sort of idealized vision of the Nazi Mm -hmm. family. And that was something I, I wanted to explore and, the, the house, the commandant's house, is a house for a good Nazi family. And and I did a lot of reading about, about Himmler and about Himmler's view of the SS and the, the role played in it of wives and children, and they became themselves honorary members of the SS. And they, you know, Himmler really believed in what he was doing, and so too did members of the SS. So it wasn't, that you can say, I'm sure in some cases, you know, they were, they were brutal. In many cases, they were brutal psychopaths who enjoyed what they were doing. But in some cases, as in Himmler's case, he truly believed in what he was doing. So he was an ideologue. And in all his speeches about the camps about extermination through labor, which was what um, was the system used at Ravensbrück, where people were literally worked to death. You know, he uses this word decency over and over again. So Himmler and the people that, that, you know, reported into Himmler truly believed what they were doing. Mm. And that, for me, kind of came through in Ravensbrück. There is this terrible in their mind that's why ordinary people did it because they believed in what they were doing mm.
0: and just before we we move on to your your second scene that you'd like to visit you are you mentioned before that you've you've described these kind of trials as show trials and is that the case in this one that where the the trial of the guards at Ravensbrook? would you have would you describe it as a show trial
1: Yes, I mean Fritz and the camp commandant, who'd lived there. He he um, actually escaped British custody just a few days before the trial started, so he wasn't on trial. And yes, there's a few senior people there, but quite a you know others not so senior. And I think all the trials are, to a degree. I mean, obviously the first Nuremberg trial is more than a show trial because very, very senior people um, are on trial, but Hitler's killed himself, Himmler's Himmler's killed himself, Bormann has disappeared, Eichmann has disappeared. So not all of the architects are there, but there were 8 million members of the Nazi party in Germany. There were 1100 concentration camps that employed hundreds of thousands of people. And then there were all the German industrialists who, who used slave labor. See There was a Siemens factory at Ravensbrück. Um, there was a, one of the slave labor camps that Catherine Dior worked at was a, a BMW factory that was manufacturing, you know, fighter aircraft engines. And I think the Allies eventually took the view, they couldn't send 8 million Germans to prison. So this process of denazification takes place. And by this point, really by 1947, they're already more worried about the rise of the Soviet Union than they are about the Nazis. Mm. So there has to be, there's a different form of collective amnesia that begins to take place just as it has done in France, where, you know, people that were very good Nazis and good industrialists have to be, you know, either they're never put on trial or they're released from prison early because they need to take part in what becomes known as the great economic miracle
0: Mm. of
1: post-war Western Europe. And that takes those industrialists and, and, you know, other leading members of the Nazi party. So would you like to tell us about what the second scene that you want to visit in 1947 is? So the second scene takes place just a few days later in Paris and it is the opening of Christian Dior's couture house at 30 Avenue Montaigne and it's been a really really harsh winter in in right across Europe actually and france and paris is still in the grip of of rationing there are still shortages of everything food petrol fuel but nevertheless he has taken this extraordinary decision to set up a couture house of his own he was already um he'd been working for another couturier lucien Lelong. but it's only with his sister's return in 1945 that he seems this ambition seems to awaken within him to set up his own couture house and to launch his first perfume. So people gather outside 30 Avenue, Montaigne, and you've got the kind of the fashion elite. So Carmel Snow is there, who was the then editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar, Bettina Ballard, who was the fashion editor from American Vogue. You also have the um, editors from Vogue Paris. And also sitting there very quietly is Catherine Dior, his younger sister, who has returned from the camps really not very long previously, you know, less than 18 months before and People walk into the couture house, they go up the spiral staircase and the circular staircase and into the, the salon where the show will play, take place. But there's so many of them, they're sort of all sitting on the stairs. And, and what seems so extraordinary to everybody that's gathered there is the luxury. So the house is filled The couture house, the Maison, as it's called, is filled with beautiful bouquets of flowers. And Catherine, by this point, has set up. She was awarded a license to run a cut flower business in Paris. And um, she's a dealer in cut flowers at the the Paris flower market. So she will have filled her brother's Maison with flowers. And it is also filled with the scent of Miss Dior. Um, And a litre of this perfume has been sprayed throughout the salon. So it smells delicious. And then the models, the show starts, and the models start walking through the salon. And they are moving very, very fast. And they are wearing just incredibly beautiful clothes that are, are long, are romantic. And they are the antithesis of what women were wearing during the the war when many women were in uniform and the women who weren't in uniform uh during the war are wearing ration clothes so skirts are you know are relatively short and tight because there's not enough fabric to do long full skirts so, so there's all this fabric is being used and In one sense, although it's christened the new look by Carmel Snow, the then editor-in-chief of of, um, Harper's Bazaar, in some ways it looks back in time to La Belle Epoque, the golden age before the First World War, where women wear beautiful, romantic, long skirts. What's interesting is that Christian himself calls the collection La Corolle, and the corolla is part of a flower. So it's literally, he says, it's a collection for flower women. And there is his sister Catherine sitting there quietly, and she is the flower woman who has survived Ravensbrook, returned from the dead, returned miraculously is both selling flowers in Paris, but she's also growing flowers in Provence at their father's farm where they had lived together for part of the second world war. The farm is in the midst of the rose growing region in Provence and Christiane and Catherine shared a love of gardening, shared a love of growing roses. They'd grown vegetables together there during the occupation but they were also both um, supremely superb gardeners who were very good at at growing roses. So there is the real flower woman and nobody picks up on her story. Nobody talks about Catherine, nobody talks about the war. And yet in in the front row, there are people that were directly affected by it. So there were people that worked for Vogue Paris the editor Michel Dubrunhoff and the fashion director, fashion editor Solange Diane, had both lost their sons. Michel Dubrunhoff's son had been shot by the Gestapo uh, just before the liberation. Solange had lost her son. He was also, um, he was, he was also killed. Her husband um, had been imprisoned and then deported to Bergen-Belsen, where he died. And there were two other friends of Christiane Dior who were very sort of senior figures in in the world of, of French fashion magazines. And their daughter had been imprisoned in Ravensbrück, but had also in Auschwitz and had given evidence at the Nuremberg trial about the conditions at Auschwitz. So what's so strange to me thinking about it now is you've got these people who are brought together by this beautiful couture show. And yet the, the threads that also join them are their experiences of the Second World War and the resistance and the concentration camps. And yet that doesn't become part of the legends of Christian or it's utterly excluded. And I found that intriguing, perplexing, and extraordinary
0: and this seems like such a basic question but I was I was wondering it while you were describing that amazing uh, you, you you paint you really painted the picture so beautifully and the smell and the colors and everything how was he able to get a hold of all of this material and all of this all of these luxury items in a time of rationing? first
1: of all he had um, his his financial backing came from a, an industrialist a textile industrialist called Marcel Boussac who um whose money had been made in textiles so that's number 1 and number 2 paris couture and perfume represents just as de gaulle becomes famous for this phrase a certain idea of france you know france the eternal france couture and perfume was very important to the French idea of itself and emerging from the trauma of the Second World War. And so materials were made available to Dior, um, as it were, free of of rationing, because for economic reasons, you know, France needed to start exporting again because it was it was broke it was bankrupt so if a couture dress is sold to you know a rich american client or a british client or whoever that brought in much needed foreign currency you know it was worth many many tons of of coal and of fuel mm. but it's also very important to frances symbolically and what's interesting is that many of the i've was struck how these Dior couture shows took place in Germany quite soon um, after the end of the Second World War, but they take place at the invitation of French diplomatic initiatives, because France, it's very important to France to show that this idea of Frenchness is still very strong. Mm -hmm. And, And it becomes, and Dior is the embodiment of this. And the Dior woman, Miss Dior who, as I said, is a partly imaginary woman, but she becomes the embodiment of this very graceful vision of La Belle France.
0: And what was people's reaction to the show? How did they? Because you can imagine that um, maybe there might have been some resentment uh, of, of such a display of
1: opulence um, and luxury. Well, the on the. The, the show itself that it's people are giving it a standing ovation and and to christianity literally becomes famous overnight you know people so even if people couldn't afford a dior couture gown they immediately women around the world responded by wanting to change the shape of what they were wearing so rather than the very boxy jackets or the, the sort of military-looking skirts, they want these romantic full skirts. Um but what's interesting, and I, I'm not sure if it was a sort of publicity stunt or not, but later that year a, a, a fashion shoot was taking place um, in at a French street market because the photographer thought it would, you know, it would be a sort of picturesque vision of Paris. And Um, a photographer caught these enraged looking women at the street market attacking the model wearing Dior couture because they were so outraged by this excess to them at a time when they're still rationing. And Nancy Mitford, the writer who loved Dior couture and was able to afford it because The Pursuit of Love, her, her novel had been such a success and she was living in Paris at the time wrote letters describing this incident, the scene, and saying, um, you know, to friends and relatives, so, you know, one risks one's life going out into your couture, because it seems to enrage class loathing in a way that nothing else can do, because of course, people knew Dior's prices and luxury.
0: Mm, you have this beautiful phrase at the end of the um at the end of your chapter about this particular moment where you write that how could anyone imagine an enchanting dream after a time of such madness and horror? And um it kind of struck me that that's like a depending on your interpretation you could either how could anyone imagine almost like it was an affront but also how can anyone imagine thank god someone did because we all really needed that.
1: Yes, and I think that Although I had moments writing the book where I think thinking, well, how could he imagine this? But I feel that, I mean, the, you know, the older I get and, and the more I understand about, you know, the history of that you all lived through two world wars, the Wall Street crash, the first global flu pandemic, the Great Depression, the Second World War but just also in my own life i realized that moments of happiness and joy and magic should be cherished and that you that unimaginable darkness it, when you endure and survive that that makes the light all the more precious and one of the things that i was so struck by when i went to ravensbrook and i will never forget is this rose garden at ravensbrook and I had to go there to discover it. I wouldn't have found it if I hadn't gone there, but it's it's this place of totally unexpected beauty. So at the end of, after the end of the war, on the site of the mass grave next to the crematorium, a number of women returned, survivors, to plant roses in memory of their, their dead friends, their dead sisters, mothers, daughters, their lost sisters, as it were. And a French woman who was in the French resistance, but also a a rose grower, developed this rose called resurrection that would survive the very harsh winters in this Northern part of Germany. And these resurrection roses have been planted there and continue to be planted there. And when I went for the first time at the end of November, when it was really cold, And, you know, the ground was still frozen overnight. These resurrection roses were in bloom. And that, to me, became so symbolic, both of the the resilience of the human spirit, but also how beauty and magic is still meaningful and can also be an act of resistance. So also in the archives at Ravensbrook, I found and I include pictures of them in the book these really beautiful little talismans that were created as acts of resistance by the prisoners which very often include a rose motif so whether it's a a drawing of a rose that is given in secret to a friend or there's an extraordinary tiny carved cherry stone that has a it's carved in the shape of a handbag and it's got a little heart on it and was given again as a, as a talisman of, of love and sisterliness um, from one woman to another. And that they, against all the odds, were still creating beauty. I also included illustrations in the book that had been made by French women, French members of the resistance, in all and and that they did these drawings. I didn't want to show those terrible, horrific drawings that, you know we remember about what the camps looked like when they were liberated. I wanted the women to be able to, you know, to give them the female gaze, allow them to show how they saw the camp, both through their own drawings, but through their own words, through their own testimony. And, And that felt really important to me. So there was much to my astonishment, Part of of the of what Ravensbrück came to symbolise for me were these fleeting images or moments of human the human spirit defying the Nazi regime through finding beauty mm-hmm. and remaining women as opposed to being so the Nazi regime was able to to proceed with extermination whether through the gas chambers or extermination through labor by seeing prisoners as as not being human sometimes even you know subhuman less than human just just you know ready for extermination and these women showed that they were still women and I interviewed one of the last remaining survivors who'd been in the camp with Catherine and the other French women and she just she was a Hungarian um, and Jewish and she and her younger sister had survived but the rest of their family had been killed at Auschwitz and she ended up in one of these slave labor camps with Catherine and she said that the French women um, including Catherine had taught them how to do the V sign the V for victory also that she knew that Catherine was still sabotaging the machinery that they were forced to work on um, the in a munitions factory in an aircraft factory um, and that was an act of resistance but also that they had looked chic to her and her sister because they'd unraveled um, sort of threads from their ragged uniforms or to, to weave into to knit into sort of turb- turbans that they would wrap around their shaved heads and that, that I mean I don't think the, Fre- the French women felt that they looked, you know, they looked at each other and they looked at to one another like they were dying. But to these two young sisters, they looked fashionable.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, and there's
1: so much strength and beauty in that image as well. I mean, yeah. Sahava, as her name is, said to me that, you know, Catherine was the captain of her own soul, mm. which is such a resonant phrase that somehow despite the the entire regime's aim of dehumanization that catherine one of the ways she could survive was remaining the captain of her own soul
0: Mm, that's such an amazing phrase that literally just gave me goosebumps when you said that a captain of her own soul she was clearly an, an extraordinary woman hello it's artemis For some time we've been working with the visual historian Jordan Lloyd and we've been telling you about his fascinating colourisation work. Well, recently Jordan has launched his new project. It's a website called Unseen Histories which showcases a broad range of fascinating historical material. You can read feature-length pieces there about female fashion in the Victorian era or beautifully illustrated extracts from books like Susan Denham Wade's A History of Seeing. For those of you who have enjoyed Jordan's colorization work in the past, there's a full range of remastered photographs from the archives of the Library of Congress. It's history for our times. Do have a look for yourself at unseenhistories.com. You're talking about the Rose Garden at Ravensbrook, and I thought that led us on really, really nicely to the final
1: scene that you'd like to visit. Um, would you like to tell us where we are? So the final scene is in Catherine's Rosefields in Provence, so towards the end of May, 1947. And this farmhouse, which is still there and where I went while I was writing the book, she had inherited in after the death of their father, Maurice Dior in December, 1946. And as I said earlier, Christiane and Catherine had spent time during the second world war there together, during the occupation. Um, and they'd grown vegetables, but it's also in the heart of the rose growing area for grass and grass is the headquarters of the French perfume industry. And Catherine went on to become a very successful rose grower growing roses uh, for the grass perfume industry as an ingredient, but for her brother, for Christiane Dior, including for Miss Dior, the perfume that was named after her. And she went on to both wear Dior, um, the the couture, but to wear Miss Dior the perfume every day for the rest of her life. So that this, this, this element of beauty remains with her and part of her and inspired by her. But she also, there's something so miraculous about having the strength and the belief and the hope in the future to tend her fields of roses, which Mm -hmm. she went on doing until her death at the age of 90. And I think to, to plant a rose field and to tend a rose field, like any garden, and she had a very beautiful garden there too, is an act of hope in the future. And I love gardening. When you're gardening, if you plant a tree or a rose meadow, you are planting for the future. You are planting for future generations. And you are also doing so in hope, because of course a bad winter or a very you know, late frosts, um, a delayed spring can affect roses like every other part of, of horticulture. But that belief that it's worth continuing to me is so inspiring. And Catherine went on believing in her roses. And I found that incredibly inspiring. Catherine lived a really full life, didn't she? She she died in not very many years ago. Yes, she died in June 2008 at the age of 90, having brought in, you know, what would be her final rose harvest at the end of May, early June. And she she did leave, sorry, she did lead a, a long and resilient life on her own terms she was not unscarred by her experience her medical records form part of her records in the archives of the french resistance and she did suffer from from bouts of of depression anxiety isolation insomnia and she was left with the, the physical after effects of of both her torture by the Gestapo in Paris and then her time in the camps. And yet her resilience was such that she she was able to make a life for herself. And one of the people I quote in the book who was a, a soldier and a you know a survivor from a more recent war, who met her because every year in the in the nearest village to to where she lived in Provence, she went to the annual remembrance day for, um, for for France of of soldiers and members of the resistance, and and he told me that that he he said to her that you know he'd survived a more recent war, but that he said that he he knew she, who she was and that you know he admired her for for what she'd done and fighting for freedom and you know that that he sort of asked the question how did you survive and she said to him M la vie jeune homme aime la vie which is love life young man love life and that's so powerful mm. there were things she could not forgive she was, till the end of her life, she couldn't bear to hear German voices, to even see a German car would upset her, but she loved life. She loved her roses, and she continued to believe in her values, which was freedom and democracy and this great resilience. And, and her brother Her brother dies in 1957 at the age of only 52, and she preserved Christiane's legacy by keeping all his drawings, his sketches, the couture gowns, and it's thanks to her that where I began, which was in the Dior archives, looking at these beautiful sketches and illustrations done by Christiane Dior, it's thanks to Catherine that these survived. So with great modesty, She she never sort of boasted of her own medals, which she received from the British and the Polish authorities because of what she'd done for those um, intelligence networks during her time in the resistance, as well as France. Um, So she never boasted about her own achievements, but she preserves her brother's legacy, which really brought me back to where I started in my research, looking in the Dior archives, all of which had been preserved by Catherine.
0: And I did wonder if you had the chance to ask Catherine any questions or to speak to her,
1: what would you like to speak to her about? First of all, where did she find the courage to join the resistance at a time when so few people were doing so? What, what was it that, that gave her that courage? And, and how did she feel knowing how few you know, people had taken that that step. What what a, what gave her that courage and that strength? Mm, yeah. So before we
0: head back into the present, um, you're allowed to bring back a memento with you from 1947. There's so much here to to reflect on. It's I imagine you might find it very hard. But what what memento would you like to bring back with you from 1947?
1: I would like the a, a, just a very small bottle of the original Mistiore, one that 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 Christian, one of those very early ones that that Christian had made as a tribute for his beloved younger sister, and and I feel that within it you you have the roses that were so important to both of them, mm. but also it's the scent of history, it's the scent of freedom, it's the scent of hope. And the scent of history would be something really miraculous to bring back with me as a memento.
0: Well, thank you so much, Justine. It's been I mean, I have to admit, there are several times throughout our conversation where I did literally get goosebumps from talking to you and listening to you describe this amazing woman in this frightening and extraordinary time. So thank you so much for joining us on Travels Through Time. Thank you, Artemis. It's a privilege and a pleasure to
1: be with you today.
0: That was me, Artemis Irvin, speaking to Justine Picardy about the year 1947. Her book, Miss Dior, A Story of Courage and Couture, is published by Faber and is available to buy now. This week, we've got not just one, but two episodes for you. As Halloween is almost upon us, Peter took the chance to talk to Malcolm Gaskill, one of Britain's leading experts in the history of witchcraft. Together, they'll be heading back to the New England frontier in the mid-17th century to analyse the curious case of Mary Parsons. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you then.